Welcome again to DDA's Encouraging Abilities Podcast. I'm your host, DDA Communications Manager, Evan Kelly. Uh, in today's episode, we are talking about autistic people. And through the power of social media, I managed to contact Nathan Keats. Uh, they're a lecturer and early careers researcher in the field of critical autism studies and the University of Sunderland, London, about their PhD thesis. Now, this is kind of cool. It's the power of social media again. I threw a tweet. I'm not sure if we can still call it that. Um, through an X, I'm not sure now. Um, so the, he had posted a picture of themselves proudly holding the copy of their PhD thesis. Now the thesis completed at the University of Kent's called Going Full Autistic in Improv, Reduction in Anxiety and Other Benefits. And that's exactly what it says. Improv as an improv comedy and how that might positively affect anxiety and other autistic valued benefits as not only is nathan a scholar but they're they also previously worked in theater so nathan thank you again for taking the time to join me today from across the pond that's all right you're very much welcome i enjoy talking talking about this so <laughs> <laughs> now that's great uh so just right off the stop uh, right off the top here like tell me a little bit about yourself uh well as you said i'm a lecturer in uh, at university of sunderland in london um, that's in uh, health and social care. Uh, as you said, my um, my uh, research and such uh, is in critical autism studies, and I have uh, previously taught that at uh, at University of Kent, where I was doing my PhD. Previous to that, I've got a background in theatre, so I have taught uh, improv for uh, quite some time, uh, probably going on 17 years. Uh, so. Uh, the PhD was basically trying to stitch my life together uh, in an interesting uh, in an interesting way. So in 2007, I went to uh, United States of America and I took some improv in a summer camp there, uh, and that was a wonderful experience. So wonderful that I thought I had to do more uh, uh, more uh, um, with it, and it took me uh, a decade or so to to look back to academia to 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 start stitching things together but uh, between that period i was practically doing stuff um so that's that's a little about me if that was if that can be classified as little i don't know <laughs> and that's so you did you theater is your sort of your is that your first love before you sort of got into uh the, the higher learning uh about autistic people and stuff Yes, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I, uh, my aspiration as a child was to to get into acting, and I did that until, um, well, in, in part I'm still doing doing it, but uh, it's not no longer my profession, uh, just because, um, the way the way life turns. Uh, I I found academia, and I actually really enjoy research, and I really enjoy teaching, and these are what I can do in in a, in a higher education institution. And so you you I assume you you got a PhD now, so we can call you a doctor of philosophy, which is quite cool. Um, yes. So did, you started would have started you got your you know your your first degree, then probably a master's, and then a, then a PhD. How long has this taken you to to get this far? Oh, very long, because I I I didn't have um that uh, that uh, inclin inclination to to be in academia, so I I started. Um, in university in 2005 uh, and then I then I found out uh, I like teaching so I then went back to university and did, uh, I did a, a PGCE so that's qualification for teaching 
Uh, and then um, uh, a few years later than that, I, I then started thinking about um, how I could piece elements of my life together. And I went back to university for masters. Then the idea of the masters was to go to the PhD. Uh, I did take a, a year break between the masters and the PhD, uh, but uh, that was just to make sure uh, the PhD was set up and I could actually get what I wanted. Because <laughs> uh, trying to get all the paperwork done as well as finish the masters is a little difficult. Yeah, I, you know, my mom always said that a PhD means piled higher and deeper. So how long did that aspect take you? Oh, four years, four years of doing the PhD. Um, I believe that is accurate. It's probably nearing five years in reality. Uh, yeah, nearing five years, but I, I, I'll say four years because it sounds nicer, cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> That's impressive. So, um, what you know, what is your interest in autistic or neurodivergent people then? Uh, yeah, well, as I said, uh, I I probably didn't know anything about uh, autistic or neurodivergent people uh, before going to that summer camp. Uh, it's at the point where that happened, I, I started reading around and thought, oh, uh, um, uh, I, I better find find out uh, about this. Just so happened that after that, returning back to, because uh, that was during my undergrad time, going to that summer camp, uh, I went back to university and realized or found out that a lot of my friends were actually autistic and neurodivergent. Oh, right. <laughs> and even retrospectively now, looking back at who, who I uh, who I was uh, hanging around with and, and enjoyed spending time with, um, they probably probably also neurodivergent uh, as well. Not that they, they didn't disclose or anything, but just understanding from where I am now is very likely. Um, so so that's how that began uh, and then uh, just getting along really well with autistic and neurodivergent people means that that personal interest uh, is sustained uh, throughout the years and then academically um, it, it's it's just a, a great topic um, to uh, ensure there's some development positive development in a way that's going to actually be helpful for autistic and neurodivergent neurodivergent people. Uh, so my uh, professional interest there is just because I do have that aspiration to um, try and improve people's lives, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's I mean, that's precisely what we do here at the Developmental Disabilities Association. I mean, we have got many clients who do certainly identify as autistic, but we, you know, we sort of run the gamut from uh, developmental disabilities, from fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, Down syndrome, the the whole thing but your 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 thesis is is focused on the autistic community correct yes yes it is yes and um why did you choose i mean we talked about imp like again the title is going full autistic and improv why did you choose in improvisation as a basis for your study um yeah as i say it, it was about pinning things together um, so uh, having taught improv and having taught it to uh, autistic, uh, oh, th that summer school was um, uh, summer camp was kids um, uh, predominantly anyway. So having having that experience and trying to pin things together, I went into my masters, didn't know what I could do. So actually, my masters research was uh, autistic comedians uh, and looking at uh, comedy, uh, and uh, then I moved from that onwards to uh, improv. Um, so it, it really was just pinning things together uh, and um, 
uh, you have to be interested in, in your PhD in order to complete it. So, so having ha coming from that interest, uh, by all means, we we uh, in academia we talk about conflict of interest. Uh, you could suggest there is because I have taught it, but there is a cutoff where I I really have no interest in <laughs> financially gaining from autistic people engaging in in improv. Um, uh, yeah, but nonetheless, uh, that that's that has its own debate. But we don't need to talk about that on your podcast. <laughs> um and so you mentioned that your 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 you know sort of your study group i guess was wasn't wasn't that big and and so did you take me through that process of sort of i i studying people uh with autism within the improv environment um so yes uh, the the second part of my thesis looked at autistic people engaging in in in, in improv uh, and and such and the uh, but the whole process was quite a quite a, a big process i had to start with understanding what was already out there what literature existed then i i wanted to understand well there's not even a lot of uh, literature around improv itself so understanding whether the past literature around that actually fits to to the global community of improvisers. And then from there, I, I started uh, looking at um, uh, autistic improvisers' experiences, non-autistic improvisers' experiences, and then eventually getting to that point where I could set up uh, classes for uh, autistic people uh, and then explore what that could be. So uh, I had uh, 17 people in that second part of the thesis where I looked at that that, that study in, in various ways. Um, uh, so I, I was looking at um, how to implement the classes in an appropriate manner. So uh, conducting some research where I look at uh, if the classes were suitable, uh, if not adapting it, uh, and that was cyclical when it was um, constantly going through these phases with different groups. Uh, the groups themselves were quite small because COVID, uh, because it was necessary uh, for, for people's comfort as well. Uh, and we were online. Uh, so there's various reasons why why the, each group was small, but I had multiple groups. So that was happening. I also looked at um, the benefits in general. And then I also measured and asked about anxiety. So those are the, the three sections of that last study, which is quite a hefty um, as you might be able to tell, I hope you can tell. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like so. So when you're measuring anxiety, I mean that that, that seems to be a big part of your thesis. Is that does does improv does do um, people with uh, do autistic people do better with anxiety in improv? So how did how did you measure that anxiety? So I was interested in just understanding generally about anxiety. So I used uh, a measure around state trait anxiety. So uh, the general state someone has in the moment, does is that reducing? Uh, maybe even if someone's trait, their general anxiety levels, do, would that decrease? Uh, the answer is no. That's the one thing that didn't happen. Uh, but I also looked at social anxiety uh, and there's a measure called Leibowitz Social Anxiety Scale. I used that looking at social anxiety and that did seem to reduce for uh, for within within that study. Um, so we can suggest that for some autistic uh, people, social anxiety will decrease. Uh, but I did find this uh, social avoidance won't won't decrease and there's lots of reasons we can explain that one uh but just um hypothesizing around what that why that could be um and i also looked at uncertainty and we don't want to talk about uncertainty in in a way that is uh, a misnomer 
everyone experiences uncertainty. What we want to look at is if we can, if certain things can reduce uncertainty for everyone. Uh, and improv seemingly can do for the general population because it has been done by a, a wonderful academic over, I think, in, in the States, uh, uh, USA, uh, called Dr. Peter Felsman. He works, he does a lot of work on improv and on anxiety and uncertainty. Uh, so he's done that, and I I used uh, I used this uh, uh, concept of uncertainty to see if that reduced, and it it did seem to as well. Um, so these were the things I was interested in, um, but I also wanted to understand exactly what was working, why it wasn't working, or any you know just generally understanding qualitatively about it as well, because we can measure these things, but sometimes the measures aren't really going to capture what we need to, because we start making lots of assumptions <laughs> when we start measuring. Uh, where, where, so I asked the, the qualitative stuff as well. And with that, we have to acknowledge the fact that uh, uh, the social world is not constructed for autistic people nor neurodivergent people. That is obviously obviously going to create issues. So we have to understand that uh, anxiety could rise when they're not in improv. <laughs> uh, and when they are in improv, maybe it goes down. But uh, first class is always going to be anxiety provoking, so that's going to shoot sky high. And if things right. don't quite go quite right uh, in the class, anxiety is going to spike as well. But in general, anxiety seemed to be quite low qualitative, qualitatively during the classes, and I only really looked at pre-post for the measurements, so so that was true as well. Uh, and there's always going to be other aspects that that create or or decrease anxiety, um, uh, including including those outside aspects, uh, even just what everyone might experience if you got, if you were, if you're uh, in um, in college in the States, then that, that could mean, you know, oh, you're worrying about your workload, or maybe if, if you've got stuff uh, in a in job and you're, you're worried about um, something in your job, that was going to increase anxiety anyway. So, you know, we yeah. can't, we can't just um, reduce down, um, reduce this down to, to a yes, no. <laughs> Well, yeah, exactly. It seems like, you know, for lack of a better term, a bit of a spectrum that uh, that you're trying to trying to cover there. So but how many, you know, when we're talking about classes, improv classes, uh, how many would you have done with these 17 participants in order to generate um, some of the answers you're looking for? So this is actually quite a, a um, let's say, cool thing with this. Uh, it was COVID times. It was online. So there's limited uh, there's limitations about what I could do. I only ran four online classes, and I and during COVID time, I still seem to manage to find a reduction in social anxiety and uncertainty. I think that's pretty impressive, considering that's not a lot of time. Uh, uh, but so I, I was quite quite uh, um, I wouldn't say surprised, but I was quite happy to find such a. a um, a result. I don't want to say. I was going to say clear result. It's not clear necessarily, but you know, it's 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 there. It's significant. Um, and and with all that qualitative data, it was it was quite. There was some some clarity to it. I suppose. I don't want to oversell some. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, did you? Obviously, this was just focused on uh, uh, autistic people. Did you look at all any other sort of neurodiverse? uh people with with different uh disabilities or no just just autism so in another study that i did in the thesis i looked at uh autistic improvisers i looked at neurodivergent improvisers that weren't autistic and i looked at neurotypical improvisers so in this one uh, i did look at neurodivergent improvisers and neurodivergent people 
um, uh, but I didn't measure anything. Those were interviews that I conducted and they had experience of improv. So I was just understanding their experience of, of uh, participating in, in improv in whatever capacity they, they did. You talked about reducing anxiety, but what other benefits uh, did you notice for autistic people involved in improv? So other benefits included um, uh, there's, there's a way of looking at quality of life. So qualitatively, uh, looking at quality of life, we found that there could be aspects of emotional well-being that occur. Uh, there could be uh, aspects of social relations that occur, and and such uh, things like this. For for um, for all improvisers, going back to my first survey that I conducted, we can we can tell that there are some social developments and communication developments, but we don't want to uh, apply this to autistic people because then we're going to lead down a track of, oh, let's do social skills training, which is really, really inappropriate. <laughs> never, never do that. Let's go and force autistic people to mask. That's not appropriate. It's not good. Um, we want to enable autistic people to have their own autistic sociality, which does occur. It does exist. Uh, uh, there's various research that says that. Um, and in, in improv, it's a social art. So uh, I, I, I preface what I'm, I'm saying now with, with what I just said, because improv can uh, provide a, a space where you can uh, develop uh, socially and develop your communication. And that occurs for, for no matter what neurotype you have. Um, so that, that's another benefit that you can have. Um, improv can, can be like a, um, uh, uh, well, it does have a community, community so you could find um, a community of people that you want to engage with as well. Uh, so that's something else that um, that can exist. Um, and that, that was threaded through the whole of my thesis because it happened with the first survey and even at the end, I was talking about autistic space and uh, and and how uh, the the autistic learners in that class enjoy being with one another. So that was already creating a a form of community uh, there, and some of which did go on after the the class to continue doing stuff together. Now, it, within those classes, I mean, I, I I get that you were sort of focused on um, the autistic people. Were were there neurotypical people involved in the class at the same time? Um, no, simply no, no. That would also damage the autistic space. Um, uh, it was literally st stated in uh, a focus group on those classes that if there was one autistic person there, that would ruin it all. Like if we were actually in person in a community hall and the other half of the hall was being run by someone, uh, their their attention, the autistic, autistic participants' attention would not be on, the, on their class, on the improv, but the other people in the room. And also, even if it's with the online class, if there was a, a neurotypical person there, they would be concerned or worried about whether they would be paired with them in a, in a game. I was putting people in breakout rooms uh, during this process, so they would be worried that they would be paired with the with the neurotypical entering a breakout room. Uh, so, so it is important to understand that it can be easier uh, for autistic people and neurodivergent people probably uh, to be paired with other autistic or neurodivergent people. The uh, many of the participants did state that uh, it didn't that mean need to be uh, an autistic person necessarily because neurodivergent people uh, can be quite welcoming and such and quite accommodating uh, anyway. So neurodivergent identity uh, is, is quite adequate according to uh, what I was told. Now 
the group you're like I guess they would be qualified as a high functioning autistic autistic uh, we we don't use that. <laughs> we don't use that okay. uh, just because that uh, that uh, that uh, creates uh, creates um, uh, uh, distinctions between people that are really inappropriate and just inaccurate. Um, uh, essentially, it just it creates stigmatized stigmatization of people. Oh, you're high functioning. Oh, you're low low functioning. It doesn't work at all. I've got uh, a research around this as well. I conducted a survey fairly recently around. Um, the uh, viewpoints of autistic people around language uh, and uh, it was a very small amount of people that were that were okay with functioning labels most people were most autistic people were not and even within those people that did uh, find it uh, acceptable to use functioning labels there was a little bit of uh, difficulty understanding exactly how it was because uh, some of the some of the points within it suggested that well i don't use it for myself but i'll use it for other people well it doesn't quite doesn't quite match fully. Um, I can't talk uh, a lot about this just because it's not published, but that, that's a, a quick overview around around that. Yeah, no, I, I, and I agree the whole the whole language about that is, you know, seems to be evolving a little bit. I, I mean, I've been involved with Developmental Disabilities Association for about three and a half, four years, and it's been very eye opening for me. And, you know, I, I, I and you sent back some edits to me before we engage in this conversation. You, you want autistic people where whereas uh, by and large uh the association here tries to put people first like person with down syndrome person with autism where it's the autistic community as you as you've sort of shown me it's the other way around yes and, yes it is and and so yes thank you for that for that uh uh bit of education um now what sort of limitations did you find in in your in your research, or perhaps were there some instances where improv sort of didn't do what you hoped it would? Um, yeah, there are there are difficulties with coming out with uh, solid, concrete uh, conclusions, which I've tried to be careful with uh, during this as well, because I can only say uh, uh, improv may work uh, for some autistic people uh, and that, that's because inside the class I also had people that just didn't get on uh, with, with it. I had uh, someone that really in, uh, wanted to enjoy it but just struggled too much to uh, to 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 engage with with improv and its, its natural uh, needs <laughs> requirements and someone else just didn't like acting out basically so there's no value to them to engage in improv when the whole uh, concept of it is is to act act out sketches and act, act out stories. So in fact, they went back to some something they were, where they could improvise in a way that was better for them. Uh, and they, through the process of engaging in in the research, in my research, they actually returned to something they previously done where they could engage with improv, but in a more uh, suitable way to, for them. Um, so there's some limitations there. Improv no, is not no, a panacea, no. which is a quote from another <laughs> participant in another study. Now, in in terms of the improv itself, were you sort of leading towards when you talk about sketches, are you leading towards like like I don't know serious drama type things or more comedy? Like, is there and was there an element that would that was a a better vehicle, if you will? Uh, the late great Keith Johnstone would say that um, 
comedy will come more easily and and first if you want to be dramatic and serious that takes a lot of effort <laughs> you need to develop as an actor to get there um so it's it uh, having that that fun having and sharing that fun is naturally going to create comedy more than create uh, something serious there are going to be people that enjoy more serious uh uh presentations of of the scene the scenes they want to do and that's okay um uh, uh, it just means that people need to need to be on board with with exactly what they're they're um, co-creating. Um, but in general, uh, you're going to get you're going to lead towards the the funny um, certainly to begin with. Now, in terms of your classes online, would have been uh, perhaps a little bit more difficult in some ways in terms of movement. We was it more about um, like the speech and the, what was coming out in terms of uh, ideas or movement was involved in some way this was a concern i had before i started the study um i wasn't so keen on putting it online because of, of this thing you're talking about you need the space you need that physical interaction uh, and it becomes very much more difficult um during that time i was also um providing classes uh in the end i ended up providing classes online on improv just in general um and what i did was i delivered film acting for improvisers in a way uh because then you you are that's what you're doing uh then we have this aspect of it as well so you've got a frame around you 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 can improvise within that frame you can still move you can still do physical things um and for the classes that's all that was required delivering some more um something more means that um we get lots of other film aspects and cinematography and such that can happen, but that's not what I was delivering in the research. Now you spent a lot of time, uh, or um, some time at least, in the U.S. Can you tell me about your experiences there? Um, yes. So I, I assume you're referring to uh, the the summer camp again, um, but I have been around uh, the, uh, the U.S. in other occasions as well. So part of of my enjoyment of improv is that I did go over and train and uh, I went to Hollywood which is very nice um uh yeah it's, it's, it was nice to train over there so so th uh so that that experience was really useful it really uh shaped how we can look at uh, improv more broadly and I think when doing that you you could then see how how broadly you can uh, uh, uh teach or apply improv in in life and for uh, autistic people maybe that also helps to to be able to understand the the, the form um, in my in my viva uh, uh, it was questioned whether the fact that uh, because of COVID I was delivering the teaching which was not the original plan they questioned me on on this matter like what it, did that impact the research and actually it did because I have a lot of experience with autistic people and I have a lot of experience with improv these things coincided in a way that's actually really conducive to to the outcome that that was being sought uh, I originally wanted to uh, bring in a, a, a really experienced um, improv teacher and I wanted uh, an autistic teaching assistant which I ended up having in my study anyway uh but the, uh, originally the plan was to have them both there at the beginning um so they that thing that changed matters and i think my experiences in the the us really helped in the way that uh i could think about the pedagogy being delivered and, and how that that could be framed um and it was 
there's a vast amount of time between my first experience in the uh, United States um, and and now, and obviously that bit in between. Um, uh, and from going from that that initial experience of delivering improv uh, for predominantly autistic kids, um, uh, that that progress was was uh, is quite an interesting one because I obviously was only really beginning back then in improv, let alone anything else. So that's uh, that's the that's the insight I think uh, I can deliver for that question. That's my experiences there. How as a society can we do better for the autistic community? Yeah, in many, many ways. <laughs> in many ways. Um, we have to, I believe, we have to stop uh, creating additional labels that aren't helpful. Uh, if we want to meet needs, we have to meet individual needs. We have to listen to autistic people and neurodivergent people, hear the voices uh, and actually uh, uh, do what's required, do what's been said. Uh, so that means re uh, um, removing any of the of the uh, norms that are supposed to exist. Because why, why, why should they exist? Uh, there are reasons academically, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So if it's not working, then we need to change uh, fundamentally. Uh, so we we uh, listen to autistic people, uh, reduce the norms that exist, uh, enable. Uh, autistic people to engage with such things as improv without it being for uh, for a, a reason other than uh, out of interest. Uh, that's another thing. I, uh, neurotypical people can go and do improv. It doesn't have to improve their uh, communication. They can just go and do it for fun and then it, it, uh, eventually they will, as per my interview study, find out actually there's lots of value here um, and yeah. that's different to that. So that's probably my quick two, two um, cents. I should say sense, shouldn't I, on that one? Yeah. Now, what what does the future hold for you? Are you, you going to move on in your career as a lecturer, or is there other areas of autistic study you'd like to embark on? Um, uh, yeah. So at the moment, I'm looking at uh, higher education and inclusive pedagogy. Um, I'm interested in uh, mental health and well-being, obviously. Uh, so I'm going to keep with that topic as well. Um, and and there's endless endless supply of things i could do i'm beginning i'm an early careers researcher now i'm early early uh, academic um so there's so much i can do um and so much uh, that uh, i would like to do is just about being realistic to to these goals uh what should i do <laughs> what should i do uh but predominantly i'm going to stick with um working with autistic people um and and that's going to be the starting point. Well, that sounds really great. I think uh, we've run out a little bit out of time. So uh, you have been listening to DDA's Encouraging Abilities podcast. Our guest today has been Nathan Keats, all the way from London, England. Nathan is a lecturer at the University of Sunderland in London and an expert on how theater and improv can be beneficial for some autistic people. Uh, Nathan, thanks again for speaking with me today. Thank you very much. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. See you next time.